Welcome to the Weightless Podcast, broadcasting to you from the land of horses and bourbon, Louisville, Kentucky. I am Tom, and I'm here with my longtime friend and colleague, Brad, and we are on the data science team at Capture Higher Ed. Good afternoon, Brad. How are you, man? I'm doing excellent. Thanks, Tom. How about yourself? Doing well. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We're, we're bringing you part two of our interview with Dan Jarrett, who is the data scientist at Infinite Campus. And in this part of the interview, he talks a lot about his uh, experience at Infinite Campus and a uh, funny little walkthrough of how he organizes his bar. And so, again, this is an opportunity, right, Brad, for, for us to really take you inside the mind of a data scientist. And it was a really great convo, a really great conversation. Yes, if uh, if you leave this podcast knowing anything, it is how to optimize your bar. Absolutely. Uh, so Dan was a great guest, and uh, again, we'd like to uh, send a big thanks to Dan and as well to his uh, his colleagues and his people at Infinite Campus for renting him out to us for the day. We had a bunch of fun talking to him, and we really uh, really appreciated uh, his being with us. So so Dan, tell us about Infinite Campus and tell us what your role is there. Infinite Campus is a student information system company. It's about 25 years old, and student information systems are the software systems that allow a school to go about its business, manage attendance and grades and transcripts, who is rostered into which course, who's teaching the course, and things like that. Infinite Campus also has products that manage payroll and HR and how to go about the actual business of paying your teachers, as well as learning management systems that allow teachers some uh, tools to manage their classrooms and and uh, figure out what students know at any given time. I work mostly today on the student information system side as a data scientist, and I work with the an early warning product for dropout prediction. The state of Kentucky came to us and said that they'd like to work with us to improve an existing dropout early warning product. And we said, sure, we'll measure how well your current product predicts school dropouts, and we'll see if we can improve it. And it turns out that we did by quite a bit. The product that the state of Kentucky had was built in-house based on some research that folks in uh, in academia had done about what are the thresholds that represent risk. And those thresholds were then baked into a database query where the the computer system would say, you know, how many absences do you have? You get so many risk points. And how many suspensions do you have? You get so many risk points. And then count up all the risk points at the end. And that, wor- that worked fairly well. And it was based on research. But the problem became that those thresholds that were hard-coded into that database query were common for every school in the state of Kentucky. They'd probably want me to say Commonwealth. And that turns out to not be optimal. Schools are really different from each other. Districts are really different. Even grade levels are different from each other. And so it's very, very difficult to have a single threshold that is right for everyone. And how do you find the right threshold? Well, researchers who had gone down the threshold route before had used some data mining techniques, and we also use those techniques, except because we have the student information system itself, we are able to look at a lot of factors and combinations of factors and have a machine learning process that the machine learning 
phrase there means that the machine itself is learning the right thresholds. And I say thresholds here because we're using a decision tree type of model and decision trees actually do work with thresholds. Other models work with coefficients or things like that. But the key point is that the machine is doing the learning and that the human's job or my job is to make sure that it is learning something that is both specific enough to be useful and accurate, but not too specific. You want it to generalize to schools it hasn't seen before or students it hasn't seen before. So it has to be a, gen a generic and yet accurate. And that's a tough thing to do. The Kentucky performance before we started our machine learning work was, uh, and I'm gonna use a scale called area under the curve, which is a measure of how well a system can predict on a scale of random, which is 0 0.5 on a 0.5 to 1.0 scale to 1.0, which is an Oracle. You know everything, you know the future. Okay, so you don't wanna be 0 0.5 and you don't wanna be 1.0. The Kentucky performance at the beginning of this process was in the mid 0.7s, totally respectable. We did logistic regression as a first pass and found performance in about the, the low 0.8s. We added some contextual interactions of not just the student's own characteristics and behavior, but also those in context of where she was enrolled or what zip code she was from. And your listeners will know what it means to add zip code. You're adding a whole bunch of correlates with socioeconomic status. That increased performance to the high point eights. And we then moved to a boosted decision tree process. Uh, this library is called XGBoost, but it, it basically is a way to, instead of learning coefficients on a big, uh, a big string of addition, which is that's what regression is, instead we're doing a single feature at a time, figuring out the threshold, and then whether kids are past that threshold or not, sends them left or right to a new decision. And the automated decision tree software builds these trees by itself until it comes to what we call a, a leaf. You know, this is the tree metaphor here. And the leaf tells you a risk score. And so that risk score is what we show to counselors. Uh, there's a, a lot of user interface work and we don't show the raw score. We do some manipulation uh, of it to make sure that it's most understandable and actionable. But in essence, we are learning from past student outcomes, product then that we can give to counselors. Uh, right now, it's not to students or parents or even teachers. Mm -hmm. Right now, that information is for counselors' eyes, specifically to help those people build relationships with the students. You know, our, our computers are not doing the interventions. We're not saving kids from dropping out. All we are is automated attention that is able to detect changes in a student's record, even when a counselor doesn't have the time to go see or the memory to know that a student's record is changing. The computer is able to do that fairly easily. That's what they're good at. But what people are good at is then building relationships and finding out why and seeing causes beneath the causes beneath the causes. You know, that's not something that a computer is going to do. But we want to give counselors evidence to know when they should talk with a student or with a parent so that students don't fall through the cracks when we all know that counselors 
caseloads are enormous and that they're expected to know hundreds of students at, at any one time. That's just not humanly possible. And we want to give them some computer help uh, for that problem. So I find it really fascinating that the you're not giving these uh, scores or, or, you know, this risk scores to teachers directly. Is that to try and, um, well, is that to try to avoid a sort of Pygmalion effect that if I know that Johnny is a, a high risk for dropping out, that I may actually teach lower to it? You know, there's just those famous studies that looked at, you know, giving one teacher who they were told were honor students and then they sort of taught upwards and then other students who are at risk and they taught down. Is that is that uh, the reason for it? The reason right now is that it is a really complex question and we just don't know the right way to address that yet. Yeah. It may be it may be that what you're saying is is correct, but we don't know yet. And as data scientists, we're not going to know that. And so something that has been really important to us is an ongoing relationship with the Department of Education in the Commonwealth of Kentucky so that they know what we're researching and we make sure that the, the research and business questions that we have address their needs specifically. It may be that we do end up showing some sort of risk score to teachers, but it might not be this risk score and it might not be uh, in the same form I'm, I'm just not sure right now. Yeah. Uh, same thing. Yeah. Same thing for students. I mean, the last thing you want to tell a student is right. we don't believe in, you know, that that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we do to students needs to be encouraging. And if we do see that there's risk and we are tasked with telling the student something, it should never be in the form of, well, we think the chances are that you're, you're going to drop out. I mean, that's, that's absolutely the wrong way to go about this. It should be with the resources so that you have every chance in the world to not drop out. And that's the, that's the case, of course, for every student. We just want to make sure that the students who, for whatever reason, and I'm going to pick on high caseloads here because we know that schools are under-resourced, that if you have an under-resourced school and that if the school were to have another psychologist, another counselor, that you might have, you might have a different outcome, but the school doesn't. So what do you do in the meantime? So I, I want to I want to address kind of this uh, one of the things that that you brought up uh, a little while ago is is one of the things that that we tend to deal with a lot in uh, in the enrollment space, which is this conversation between interpretability and uh, predictive power. So you built this uh, predictive model that produces um, a, an outcome, you know, uh, as a score. But along the way, um, I know that decision trees are perhaps a bit more interpretable than some other uh, more black boxy models. But I'm curious uh, if you could sort of address how you um, how you take the results that are from a highly accurate predictive model, and you convert that information into something that policymakers in the Commonwealth or elsewhere could use as a as a potential sort of systemic solve for um, these intractable education problems, namely students dropping out. That's a great question, and there's two levels of answer to that. The first is that you have an interpretability problem at the individual prediction level when counselors are saying, well, why does a student have a certain risk score? And a general way to solve that problem is by artificially wiggling the input, changing a few things, and seeing what the risk model comes out with at the other end. So one way that we do this is 
by changing, if you have a student with a 3.0 GPA and you measure her risk score that comes out of that, her actual risk score, then you artificially change that GPA temporarily to be perfect, you know, 4.0 or 4.5 or whatever the school's perfect GPA is. And you see what the risk model gives you as a prediction. The difference between the two predictions from her actual data and her pretend perfect GPA represents the risk that was added given uh, because of the student's actual academic data. And you could do the same for attendance, for instance. So that that's a generic thing you can do if you want to poke at a black box model, even decision trees, which are not really black boxes. You can wiggle the inputs, see what changes on the outputs, and make some inferences about what that means about the internal structure. There's but, a separate, yeah, go ahead. But, but in, in, in general, um, you know, the, the conversation that you had earlier was that the initial sort of thresholds that were built were built using sort of a theoretical specification of that model. You read a bunch of research papers, you bake that in. Um, and that's, that's the way that I think a lot of folks are, uh, especially in the enrollment management space are familiar with models being built. And then you sort of describe this machine learning approach, which is a little bit more, um, take a ton of data and uh, build out you know, a, a massive data set. And even though it's uh, less sort of connected to um, theoretical research that's been done, it seems to be much more accurate. You've bumped up that, uh, that AUC from the mid sevens to the low nines. Um, so could you just talk really quickly about sort of your take on the interpretability versus accuracy discussion? Because it's something that, that quite honestly, we hear all the time where we built something really accurate but the question just immediately comes back because we're all human beings that all have natural innate curiosity about the galaxy of, well, what's in the model? Why is it doing that? I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. This is a, as you well know, a key dichotomy of machine learning is it's easy to build something like a neural network that is changing weights hither and yon and coming up with something that very well may be an accurate prediction, like when Google Photos labels your photos. And if you go to Google Photos and search for mountains, it's going to give you pictures of mountains. And that's really awesome. That is a self-explanatory system. You can, you can see that it works. And it doesn't really matter why. So Google's got a good, good domain there. We have, a, we have a different challenge. When we say that a kid has a particular risk, you can't just look at that kid and say, well, well, it's obvious they have that risk, you know, unlike the photos where it's obvious that there are mountains. And so when you, and we are essentially labeling a kid with a risk score, and, and that is not appropriate without an enormous amount of context about why you've done that. Because in real life, you would never just walk up to a kid and label them, oh, you know, you're a 74 and you're a 92. And the, the kid would feel slighted as they should, because, you know, what, why are you saying that about me? What evidence do you have? You don't know me. It's really important to know people. I mean, this is, this is why a risk score is only useful in the context of a human relationship. But if we're going to ask counselors to actually use our risk scores, uh, or if we're asking the Kentucky Department of Education to use a machine learning model in generic dropout prevention strategies, they're going to want to know 
how do you know these kids? What is it about them that leads you to say that there's risk so that we can do something about it? It's not just good enough to have a risk. We need to know how we can fix it. We need to be able to approach the child and say, we've noticed that your attendance has been slipping recently, or we've noticed that you and a few other, well, they wouldn't say this to an individual child administrators, they might say, look, there's a group of children who have similar characteristics where we can maybe come up with a group intervention for them, maybe even spend resources for that. And so as soon as you get to the, the business need here of actually improving children's lives, you need to offer, as a data scientist, you need to offer a path to achieving that goal. You know, our, our business goal is not labeling kids. It's, it's not even, you know, it's not getting money from customers. It's helping children's lives improve. But we can't directly do that. You know, the, the algorithms are not going to improve the lives of children. People are going to improve the lives of children. And so the only way we can accomplish our goal is by helping counselors or other people who have those relationships have more information to more efficiently help the child. And that may mean something like uh, looking at prior outcomes of giving certain interventions. You know, Kentucky stores records of which interventions have been given to which children. And so one data mining technique that you can do is, is say, controlling for a lot of other factors, did a certain intervention work? There's entire uh, academic subfields around this problem. The advantage that educational technology companies have is enormous data sets. At Infinite Campus, we have about 2,000 school districts who are customers of, of, our, uh, of our product. We have about 8 million students out of the 50 million students in the country. About 8 million of them are on Infinite Campus software. And uh, therefore, we have a very, very large data set that, with the permission of our customers, we can look into and try to create new knowledge. You know, traditionally, the software has been that the customers put in, put in data, and then we report it out to them. That's what databases are meant to do. People put data in, computer reports data out. But then data mining comes along with the ability to try to look for patterns within the data and generate new knowledge. That is the joy of my work, is looking for patterns that our customers would not have seen because they were looking at individual children's records rather than group effects or rather than highly multidimensional contextual interactions, something that computers are good at. If I can build a system that helps our customers see that new knowledge in a way that they can act on right away to improve children's lives, then I've succeeded. So I'm really curious about, you walked through the, the construction of this model for at-risk, and you uh, at different times added in demographic data, um, so about the student's background, but also um, featured quite prominently behavioral data, so data about what the student has done, whether it's through suspensions or other things, or I'm assuming you know, uh, behavior in the learning management system. Tell me, what, what, is, what have you learned in terms of, um, in, the, in that domain, about the predictive additive value of a demographic behavior versus a behavioral set of data? 
Because so to put it in our context, we um, just about uh, several months ago started including online prospective student data in our predictive models for applicant models, and found that it it actually did add some predictive value to what was um, before that a, a a much more demographic base, you know. So this dichotomy of this is where a student comes from, this is what that background says they should be like versus here's some actual behavior that this student is actually doing. What what have you learned, I guess, about modeling in that in that setting? Sure. I, to uh, to work through the the nomenclature here in K-12 education data, behavior, like you said, often refers to misbehavior. Uh, has the student misbehaved in some way and then been punished for it? There's also positive behavior, which we do store in our product. Most of our customers do not have positive behavior events in their database. Um, the, even though it's it's available for them, the you know, traditional behavior records are just what did you do wrong and did we did we punish you for it? Oh my! But <laughs> I know that, and, that right there is pretty telling. Yeah. I mean, that that's a whole separate podcast, but we're, uh, that's a, that's just a fascinating. So those are all just what a bunch of null values. Nobody is going in at the end of the day plugging in like little Jimmy did awesome in class <laughs> that's right. today, that's right? right? And and it is certainly it is certainly not that our customers don't care about it. In fact, right, positive right. positive yeah. behavior reinforcement is key to pretty much what all of these schools are doing. It's just, there is not a reason for them to put that in infinite campus. I mm -hmm. do not blame that them for that. The sure. most important thing is that that's what they're, that's how they're interacting with the students. Um, but you are right to say that the, the most important difference here is that there are some things that a student does, and there are some things that are done to a student. The things that a student does, you could think of as just behavior in general, not misbehavior, but the things that they choose to do that are things like, do they come to school? Uh, do they get in fights? What are their grades? Things like that. There are a separate class of features. Uh, I use feature here as um, mm -hmm. things for the predictive model of things that are done to a student. And that could be, were they punished if they misbehaved? Did their parents move around a lot? Uh, did the school district move them to an alternative school? Things like this. It turns out, as you may imagine, that the items that a student does have much greater correlation with whether they drop out of school. That's moderated by a heavy context effect of where they're going to school. Hmm. And I would, I would say that, the, um, that something like percent in attendance, you know, people talk about chronic absence all the time, that is absolutely borne out in the data that the percent of time that a student is in school is probably the, the number one predictor of whether they're going to drop out. Other academic things such as, you know, what are what are the grades in their classes? Did they did they pass their ninth grade core courses, things like that, are also extremely predictive. The things that are done to a student are somewhat predictive, with the exception of items that refer to stability. And that is, is a kid changing home addresses in the middle of the school year? That's somewhat predictive. Is a kid changing schools in the middle of the school year? That's more predictive. That students tend to do better the longer they're at a school and the more stable their home environment is. No surprise there. And most of those things, the kid has no agency over. And so the model is picking up on, given 
that home and school environment, what are the choices that the student is making? Together, yeah. they, they come out to produce a, a pretty good model. That's fascinating. Yeah. So your kind of take on that is based, based on the fact you said that it's moderating, that sort of all factors are, uh, or all, all features are sort of working together in tandem in order to make those effects uh, more predictive or more useful. But in sort of a human way, uh, it's better to think about the things that we can actually influence and that the student can actually influence um, because all of these data points together, a computer is going to be pretty dangerous at looking at how all of those statistical effects work together. And a good machine learning model is going to take the best of certain features and reduce the worst of certain features and combine all of that together. Um, but basically what you're saying is at the end of the day, when we're working with young people and we're working with human beings, uh, by the way, I don't mean to impute words into your mouth. Let me ask this in the form of a question. Um, you know, irrespective of how all these data are working together, what is your take on the way that we should actually influence student outcomes or institutional outcomes uh, in, in order to make them more effective or more efficient? This has nothing to do with the actual machine learning model or even my job. It's just the personal opinion of funding our schools that the reason that I'm doing resource optimization work, which is essentially what the early warning risk score is, is that we have fewer resources in our schools and we need to optimize them. If we would have more resources, there would be less need for a tool like this. Yeah. The more opportunities we give staff members to build relationship with students, the better off we're gonna be. And for instance, if a school said, you know, they'd rather uh, using the same money buy the time of an additional staff member or my product, I'd say, go by the time of a staff member, you know, fund more relationships. But there will be some times when our customers believe that it's more cost-effective to have automated attention, which is what we offer. And, and so maybe that our product would be the appropriate choice for them. It just completely depends on the individual customer's, customer's budget there. Uh, that's, that's interesting that you talk about resource optimization. I mean, that is, that is what, you know, I get up and I think you get up thinking about every single day. And at the end of the day that, uh, the conversation we're having is about students, but I just can't tell you enough how much I appreciate that response you just gave, which is, uh, all of this work is intended to help people do more with less and nothing else. If people had more and they didn't have to do more with less then uh, I would be reasonably happy to be outsourced out of my life. If, uh, uh, and and maybe not that, but to uh, to apply the same skill set to a business problem that didn't need to be optimized so badly. That's right. This is a problem that we don't want to have. And even though it's provided me a great deal of work and joy in finding solutions, I don't want to have this problem. I'd much rather be doing something else because the fact that early warning is needed is bad for our country. So I don't want to have to build this, but here we are. So if there's any Congress people listening to this, fund our schools. They're here. So, uh, so I think that provides us with a, with a tremendous segue. So Dan, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on uh, the waitlist was so that our listeners can hear 
how a data scientist goes about thinking through problems like this. And you've done that, and that's wonderful. Um, but, but maybe there's a, maybe another problem, and, and, and you and our, our, our prep call talked about a, uh, a particular problem at home uh, regarding your bar that, uh, that was um, – you were using data science principles to figure out. And I'm, I'm curious if our, our listeners will find it useful to hear. Can you tell us about some of the uh, sort of uh, home projects that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. I love to do it in my spare time. So <laughs> this this discovery problem is not, of course, just in colleges. It's not just in finding the right books to read, but it's in other items that you might consume. And so a couple of years ago, I started uh, deciding to make old fashions instead of uh, beer. Okay. And then I liked them enough and I thought, well, what other cocktails can I make? And there are some really good books out there for uh, for newbie cocktail enthusiasts and a whole bunch of books that are great for wannabe bartenders. And so I picked up a book called The 12 Bottle Bar that said, okay, in just 12 bottles, we can give you a shopping list that is going to allow you to make a great deal of wonderful cocktails and you don't have to worry about the complexity of the domain because we're going to simplify it for you. And that worked really well. I learned a lot through that book. But then once I sort of graduated from the 12 bottle bar and wanted to <laughs> get, buy get some a, more. Get a 13th bottle. <laughs> That's great. What, what should the 13th bottle be? And that was actually the research question. What should the 13th bottle be? And an answer to that is, well, what other cocktails out th- are out there? What ingredients do they have? And maybe I should reword my question to be, what single bottle should I buy that would increase the chance that I would be able to make a cocktail that made me happy? So the first part of that answer is what ingredients are out there? And I should probably go about buying an ingredient that actually is in a lot of cocktails. And so, you know, it's, it's not going to help me to, um, to go buy something that's that only appears in a single cocktail like uh, aviation has a single ingredient that is it's in that cocktail but in almost no other cocktails and so you know why would you go out and, and buy that unless you're just going to drink aviations every night I, i'm sorry can you tell us what an aviation is <laughs> uh yeah well, the, let's let's google that up yeah sure sure let me get the uh the exact Oh, yeah. So Wikipedia says that uh, that's an aircraft. I should probably. Yeah. So I'm seeing uh, the ingredients are creme de violette or creme yvette. I've never heard of either of those. A half an ounce of marchino liquor Uh uh, and then gin and lemon juice. So uh, let's just bring that to where my bar is at. I couldn't make any of that. Do you have a gin? I, I... I do actually. Okay, great. Great gin. That that's a good start. All right. So you you may have lemon juice for cooking. So that's awesome. Uh, maraschino liqueur is that that's a specialty here. But the one they have on the Wikipedia picture, which is Luxardo maraschino liqueur, that is a a good quality one. That is absolutely my my go to. And that maraschino liqueur appears in a lot of cocktails. And so if I was to suggest that you go out and buy some ingredients, gin lemon juice or lemons, and maraschino liqueur would be very high on the list because they appear a lot and they allow you to make lots of different things. But the other ingredient here, which is uh, creme de violette or 
other people do creme de fleur or things like that. Uh, and actually, I think Tattersall out of uh, the Twin Cities has creme de fleur. Things like that are specialty liqueurs. And if you are at the beginning of your cocktail search, you should be focusing on either things that you know you love and are going to make you happy no matter what drink they're in, or they're things that allow you to try out new cocktails that you're likely to like. So why spend money on creme de violette if it's going to be used for a single cocktail? Um, unless you try an aviation at a bar or a friend's house and you like it and you decide you want to keep drinking them, then go ahead and, and get it. Knock yourself out. That's right. So so th this was the research question. Completely separate from this is a preference elicitation question of what cocktails make me happy. So forget <laughs> about that. Yeah, forget about that for a moment and just focus on the what recipes can I make question. So the way that I went about solving this in prototype, not in production, is to have a cocktail database and to have a, in that same database, to have a representation of my own home bar and then to have a, a quick, what can I make tonight filter, just a database query. And it says, okay, go through the whole list of cocktails that I have and match that up with the home bar and give me the recipes back for which I have every ingredient. Okay, that's thing number one. Thing number two is, maybe some of these recipes have a single ingredient that is missing. And, uh, and so that could inform my shopping list. And so the shopping list generation tool says, all right, go find all of those recipes and then count up the ingredients by how many recipes they're in. So it may be that uh, if I'm out of tequila, for instance, and tequila is the only thing missing in eight recipes, well, then its score would be eight. And I'd know that if I'd only go buy tequila, I could make eight new recipes. Wonderful. A second, like, 2B there is uh, rather than saying what is the what are recipes that only have one ingredient missing, you could just say what are the missing ingredients over all recipes and, and count ingredients up that way. After that, you have some questions of, okay, now maybe I want to filter this by cocktails that I actually enjoy. Uh, there's no sense going and getting a whole bunch of Jennifer recipes. Jennifer is an old-fashioned type of gin. If you don't like the taste of Jennifer, I like Jennifer. My wife doesn't. Therefore, I'm not going to go out and buy a whole bunch of Jennifer-focused ingredients for drinks that include Jennifer because I like to share cocktails with my wife. So, so what was the yeah. yeah? So what was the third? So I, think I, I, I think I actually think we have a ton of questions here, but uh, Tom, you go ahead, and then I actually have one as well. So what was the thirteenth bottle? What did it end up being for you? It was actually far more than a single bottle. <laughs> <laughs> it it was going to Target and buying a liquor cabinet. <laughs> a whole thing. Yeah, nice. yeah, an actual piece. Of, it was an actual piece of furniture, and now after. Uh, you know, this has been maybe a year and a half or two years into this cocktail journey. And it, I probably have something like 80 or 90 different bottles now. There you go. Uh, just, just because I enjoy trying new things. And uh, in recommender systems, there's something called novelty seeking behavior. And people go back and forth between consuming items that they know they like and consuming new things. Uh, this happens in music a lot. If you're on Spotify, Spotify actually cares whether you want to hear something new or hear something you've heard before. And their recommender system scientists are calculating that. The same thing would be true for cocktails. 
Do you want to make an old fashioned using the same recipe that you've made a hundred times before? That's wonderful. You should make what makes you happy. But sometimes you, you've got novelty seeking behavior and you're going to try to find something that you have never made before. And maybe it's going to take an extra 15 minutes. And that really doesn't matter because the point is you're expanding your boundaries. Either way of, of enjoying cocktails is, is a great way. So uh, that's that's an incredibly interesting uh, answer. What what I'm curious about, and I think this almost gets back, believe it or not, all the way back around to our college search space. And I didn't mean that intentionally. But what about the interaction effects? Like if I drink gin on its own, it has a very specific taste for me. But gin mixed with something else um, that's carbonated or that's sour or that's bitter um, makes my experience with gin totally different. So how do you, in something like this, aside from the fact that maybe you can you can basically use some sort of wisdom of the crowd's idea that if a recipe makes it out into the universe, it probably doesn't suck too badly because it's been tested over time and it's made it through a bunch of bartenders and it's made it through a bunch of customers and it ended up in your book. So maybe that wisdom is enough to know that you're not, uh, you know, so to speak, you know, mixing uh, offensive ingredients together. But you have ingredient one, you have ingredient two, you have ingredient three. You know that you like each of those ingredients within the space. But how do you account for the fact that those ingredients mixed together are going to be different than their individual components? You're getting into something that is more recipe generation or understanding the, the interaction of ingredients to each other, which this, at least this prototype, is not designed to do. I know that there's a number of food recipe focused data scientists that are looking at creating new recipes or new substitutions in recipes or uh, coming up with just coming up with with new things that is not really my focus uh, my focus is definitely of a library of recipes that have been pre-selected let's try to uh, pick some out that are candidates for you sure the, how, how big is that data set, by the way? How many recipes are in your, uh, not in, in the recipes that you're able to make with your home bar, but in the entire universe of recipes? How many are in there? Oh, man. In my database, because it's in prototype stage and I'm hand entering all of this stuff, uh, you know, low hundreds just for, for my own okay. stuff. But that does not represent the actual total number of recipes that are out there. The the International Bartenders Association has IBA-approved cocktails, which are sort of these uh, stereotype recipes that if you care about cocktails, you'll learn about because they represent classes of or famous historic cocktails. So I, if you're interested in cocktails, go make the IBA cocktails. So those were the first ones in the data set. I also found that there are some open source data sets, and in particular, Wikidata is an important one. And I, I encourage your listeners to go to wikidata.org, which is a Wikimedia Foundation website, the same people who run Wikipedia. Wikidata is an open, collaboratively edited, structured database. And that means that you can take data from it and use it for your own purposes. And they have data on cocktails in there, as well as almost everything else under the sun. I put a whole bunch of college-focused data into Wikidata, but then I consume the cocktail-focused data. You can uh, enjoy whatever you want out of the data set. And, and actually, uh, for your own purposes, uh, guys, using Wikidata as a data source to inform what you think about different entities that are out there, whether it's colleges or places in the world mm -hmm. or majors, it's incredibly useful. 
So one way of going and getting cocktails is just doing a database query on Wikidata and saying, go get me anything that is, they call it instance of cocktail. And it'll give you back a whole bunch of them. And then you can ask for the ingredients and it will tell you the ingredients with database qualifiers of amounts. So then you can just use it in your own software. Nice. Well, Dan, that is a bunch. Of helpful, uh, a bunch of helpful information. I personally would like to offer, since we happen to coincidentally be in the same town, I would like to offer to buy you a cocktail uh, over the coming weeks at your uh, your favorite cocktail room of choice here in the Twin Cities. So if, if you if you've got some free time, I'd uh, I'd love to I'd love to spring for a round. And Tom, if you've got a plane ticket in you, we'd love to love to have you join us. Done, absolutely done. Uh, Dan, do you have a, a, a way that uh, listeners can reach out to you if they have questions or just want to connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. You can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Jarrett. That's D-A-N-J-A-R-R-A-T-T. You can also reach out to me at my personal address, daniel.jarrett at gmail.com, D-A-N-I-E-L dot J-A-R-R-A-T-T at gmail. Awesome. Uh, either way, I'm happy to, happy to chat with you. Fantastic. Uh, Dan, thanks as always, man, and uh, appreciate you being on the wait list. Hey, you're welcome. This is really a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dan. Again, big thank you to Dan Jarrett, data scientist at Infinite Campus. We want to hear from you, so please tweet at us at waitlist. Please do us a favor, share the podcast and leave us a rating on iTunes or whatever your favorite listening app is. And check out our GitHub repos for some useful tools to help your team stay data awesome at github.com forward slash capture labs. Take our PodTrack listener survey. A link can be found at capturehighered.com forward slash waitlist. You can also become a friend of the show on the Untapped app to check out the beers we are enjoying during the podcast and find out where you can get them in your hometown. Just search for the Waitlist podcast in the Add a Friend section of the app and let us know what your favorite beer is and we'll include it in future episodes of the show. A big thank you to Alicia Rice, our executive producer, and thank you for making us part of your day. Thanks, Brad. Cheers. Thanks, Tom. The Waitlist Podcast is a supporter of the Creative Commons and open source online communities everywhere. A link to the bump music used in this podcast can be found in the show description and at capturehighered.com forward slash waitlist.